AJC's Show Up for Shabbat campaign united millions of people to honor the victims of the attack on Pittsburgh's Jewish community and send a powerful message. Hate will not prevail. Show Up for Shabbat was named an official nominee for the 23rd Webby Awards. Votes have been pouring in from around the world, but we still have a way to go and very little time. Today, Thursday, April 18th, is the very last opportunity to vote. It ends at midnight Pacific time. So go to AJC.org slash Webby vote. That's W-E-B-B-Y-V-O-T-E, AJC.org slash Webby vote. Or click the link in our show notes to cast your vote for Show Up for Shabbat. Let's raise our collective voice against anti-Semitism and hate. Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. 9-11 was a traumatic, defining moment for all Americans of my generation. So it wouldn't sit well with us if a member of Congress were being flippant about it. Is that what Ilhan Omar was doing, though, when she spoke about those attacks last month? Does she deserve the repeated attacks on her from President Trump? And what are we to make of the varied responses from Democrats? Here to explain this complex conflict is Ron Campius, Washington Bureau Chief for the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. Ron, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, over the weekend, this kind of ticking time bomb erupted. Uh, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar um, of Minnesota had spoken, I think, a couple of weeks ago to a CARE event, the Council on American-Islamic Relations event, um, which is a controversial group. And suddenly it erupted onto Twitter. Can you tell us about her remarks and about how they kind of hit the political mainstream? Um, She was at the CARE event, which was last month in March, uh, and which, you know, had actually received a lot of publicity because there had been protests and because, as you said, the group is controversial and because, uh, because she's become such a lightning rod because of, of statements she said in the past that appearing to invoke certain anti-Semitic slurs about Jews and control and money. Um, but she was talking about why uh, an organization like CARE is needed from her perspective. And, um, and she was saying that uh, after the 9-11 attacks, uh, there was an increase in Muslims being indiscriminately targeted or discriminated against. And she had talked about the 9-11 attacks, I think, or she referred to them. She'd called them terrorist attacks earlier in the speech. But there's this one passage where she said something happened because of some people or, or something like that. I don't have it right in front of me. Right, I, th- I think it was so- some people did something. Some people did something. And... Uh, and then the majority were blamed uh, among Muslims. So taken out of context, it sounds like she's sort of uh, just diminishing 9-11. But uh, within context, her, her, her reference point is don't blame a whole class of people for what a minority among it do. And so I, th- I think, you know, it struck me that in context, especially because she was extemporizing, this wasn't a prepared statement <laughs> marking the 9-11 uh, attacks. I, I think it was relatively normal, but uh, certainly people began to... Um, seize upon it, among others, uh, well, first of all, a, an imam in Australia who is very pro-Israel, 
chided her on Twitter for it. And then Dan Crenshaw, the Republican congressman from Texas, who's becoming increasingly popular and has a high national profile, chided her for it. And then uh, last Friday, a week ago from tomorrow, uh, President Trump posted a uh, an intercut of her people say her, of her saying some people say some things. Just that phrase, not even the whole phrase. Some people did, did some people did some things and intercut it with footage of the um, of the 9/11 attacks. Which was really a, a vile video, uh, we thought, here at AJC. Of course, that doesn't excuse Representative Omar's history, but the idea that, you know, I, I think people were saying that she was receiving death threats as a result of the president's targeting of her. Is that right? Well, in fact, yeah, I mean, she's uh, got a history of getting death threats ever since she's come into the public eye. And I think even before, like, the anti-Semitic comments, she had a history of death threats, simply because she was a Muslim running for Congress. What happened is that they accelerated to a point that Nancy Pelosi asked her congressional police to pay extra attention and to uh, add protections for her after the um, yes after the, the video that Trump posted that became quite intense mm-hmm. I think beforehand she was she said she was getting one death threat a day before that and I don't know how many it multiplied to afterwards goodness um, you mentioned Speaker Pelosi. She was perhaps uh, one of the most ardent defenders of Representative Omar, not just in terms of literally assigning a, a Capitol Police detail to her uh, defense, but an outspoken defender. She said, quote, the president's words weigh a ton and his hateful and inflammatory rhetoric creates real danger. She also said that there's no taint of anti-Semitism in the Democratic Party. Um Do you think that that is, you know, kind of an overzealous pushback to this incident? Or do you think she's, you know, right on to say that there's no taint of anti-Semitism in the Democratic Party? Um, I think that she's deflecting a little bit. Uh, You know, one of the weird things that I wrote about this a couple of times with the um, with the Omar case is that she said there's three tweets in particular uh, or the two tweets in the talk that she gave that are have been targeted as anti-Semitic. She actually apologized for the first two tweets. She's not backing down from what she said in the talk, which is that she feels forced to, uh, she feels uh, pressured to uh, pledge allegiance to Israel. But the tweets about Jews and money and and Israel being hypnotic, she has disavowed. And what's interesting is in a call she had with um, some uh, liberal Jewish community groups, she started off by saying, you know, there are people who are defending what I said. I don't want those people by me. Um, which is a very, you know, a very smart way to start off the call. She doesn't want her enablers. Hmm. Uh, and so yeah, I think that, yeah, Pelosi's deflecting a bit because there are those enablers within the Democratic Party. There are those people who are saying that even though Ilhan Omar recognizes what she said is, uh, was anti-Semitic and hurtful, and she's expounded on that in public she, on, on, the, uh, on, the Daily Tro- on the Daily Show she talked about how she didn't realize she was being hurtful. There are people who are saying, no, 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 what you're saying isn't hurtful. And I think that's a problem that... Uh, Nancy Pelosi is ignoring because it is coming from a, a wing of the Democratic Party and it is coming from the left. And, um, and that's a problem. You know, her, her other tendency is to dismiss Ilhan Omar and Ayanna Presley and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and uh, Rashida Tlaib, who are all four women of color who have come from the left, to saying that they're a small corner of the Democratic Party. And that's kind of counterproductive in two senses, because you don't want to be dismissing a court that is sort of energetic and young and of color on the one hand on the and on the other hand you don't want to if if somebody like Ilana Omar and to an extent Rashida Tlaib are saying things that are very hurtful to the Jewish community it doesn't help to just say okay they're there we're here and it's fine you know it's it's more like a and this is something that Republicans are seizing upon because they have their own problem with Steve King 
and they've isolated him. The, he's the uh, congressman from Iowa who has wondered why such white supremacy is depicted as such a bad thing. <laughs> um, now, of course, Pelosi wasn't the only Democrat to uh, to comment on this incident, on this you know back and forth between Trump and Omar. In fact, you would be hard pressed to find Democrats, perhaps, who uh, who didn't weigh in. But um, among the kind of titans of the party, um, Bernie Sanders, leading presidential contender, had a Fox News town hall this week. And as the moderators or, or hosts tried to set him up for a question by saying that he was a staunch supporter of Ilhan Omar, he said, quote, I've talked to her, I think, about twice in my life. So he rejected the idea that he was a, you know, quote, staunch supporter. And he said that she has to do better speaking to Jews. It's almost interesting to see, you know, I, I feel like there's almost a role reversal going on here with Pelosi and with Bernie. You know, what, what did you think about that? I think that Bernie, um, it's funny, I've just been writing about this this second. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Bernie learned the lessons of his 2016 campaign um, in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, he's just overall, that's a holistic Bernie 2020 story that he's he's got a better campaign going. He's raising money faster. He's more organized and he's also more subtle. And I think he recognized the uh, the difficulties that uh, not distancing oneself from what Elon Omar has said could pose for him. He wants, to, you know, the other things he said in that same passage in the Fox News thing, he, he said that this is very sensitive for me. My my father's family was devastated in the you know by Hitler, uh, and 2016 Sanders like in a in a very kind of typical way of his generation wasn't so comfortable talking about his Jewishness didn't really bring it up and here he brought it up very effectively because I think he recognizes that it's okay to have you know an ethnic and religious identity in 2020 politics and um, the other thing is that he said that. Um, you know, and then he finished it by saying it's not anti-Semitic to criticize a right-wing Israeli government. So a lot of qualifications in there. Like you're having leftists in the party who would say it's not anti-Semitic to criticize Israel, full stop. No, Bernie is actually being subtle. He's saying not just to criticize an Israeli government, but a right-wing Israeli government. So he's, um, I think he's just, he's just learning the questions that might have like uh, alienated people overall. It might have alienated folks in 2016 who saw him as too radical and he's moderating them now. And that goes for Israel policy and for how to speak about being Jewish as well. Mm-hmm. So if, you know, perhaps somewhat surprisingly, the pragmatic Pelosi was the one who rushed most heroically to Omar's defense and and the progressive Bernie um, was the one who kind of tried to take a, a middle path. Um, we come now, of course, to the Democratic centrists or at least to the ones who are in moderate districts. And there was news this week that two of them, Dan McCready, who's running in that special election in North Carolina where the results were overturned because the Republican candidate had cheated. Um, right. And uh, and Lucy McBath, the uh, gun control activist who was elected um, in Georgia, they both um, they didn't announce it. But uh, after some investigatory work, it was revealed that they had refused or returned donations from Ilhan Omar's PAC. Um, right. First of all, what are we to make of this? with regard to, uh, to Ilhan Omar? I think that, yeah, she's a divisive figure. And I think it speaks to, I mean, there's a transition going on in the Democratic Party in presidential campaigns, particularly where you're getting, you're transitioning from big donors to small donors. That's, that's not as easy in uh, congressional races. You still need the, the big substantive donors. And there are still a lot of Jewish donors who give to PACs and to congressional races. 
And there's a recognition, especially if, like, look, ready, you're adopting a pro-Israel position, that it would be hypocritical to take from somebody like uh, Omar. And it's not even the anti-Semitic stuff. It's like her backing the, uh, the BDS uh, movement, the mm-hmm. Boycott, Divestment, mm-hmm. and Sanctions movement that targets Israel. And that's, uh, so that's just the reality that separates congressional from presidential races. And, you know, is, is there a larger story here, right? Might we eventually see moderate Dems or, again, you know, Dems running in moderate districts, rejecting donations from progressive elected officials' PACs in general? You know, is, is this something that we could see spreading to other kind of lights of the progressive movement and even, you know, causing some kind of a rift in the Democratic Party? I think there's, you know, I don't know if, that, if that's entirely the case. It could be. I mean, the other thing that would reinforce that is the... Uh, uh, DCCC, the uh, Democratic Congressional Re-election Campaign Committee, has advised that it's not going to work with people, with contractors who work with uh, primary challengers. And uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York has said that's just terrible and we should stop giving money to the DCCC. Uh, in other words, uh, the, the, the progressive candidates who fundraise. Uh, you know, and, and the way it works, you fundraise obviously for your own re-election, but if you're short of re-election and you think you fundraised enough, you give to others, including to the DCCC. So she's saying, okay, we're not going to give to the DCCC as long as they have that. And, of course, she won by challenging uh, an incumbent Democrat in a primary, and uh, so did Diana Presley in Boston. So that might lead to that kind of division. On the other hand, there is a real sort of effort in the party. It's, I think it's very serious, and Nancy Pelosi is leading it to try to create room for both, for moderates and progressives. And it was articulated by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez right before the last election and after her primary win. She, was, she said, of course, my primary made sense in a very solid Democratic seat. There's no reason why somebody as progressive as I am shouldn't run in this seat because a Democrat was going to get elected anyway. I wouldn't want to get in the way of Democrats who are having a difficult time facing Republicans. You know, if they need to be moderate, to be moderate, they should go ahead. And so that might prevail and that might create the kind of peace that the Democratic Party needs. Now, last question. In 2018, Donald Trump's name was not on the ballot, but he was most assuredly running, in a sense. He was running against this uh, migrant caravan coming up through Central America and and Mexico. And many people, uh, many pundits have speculated that his kind of campaign against that wave of immigration was uh, instrumental in pulling some endangered Republicans over the finish line. In 2020, we know, uh, or, or at least we think we know, uh, that his name uh, will certainly be on the ballot. We have no idea whose name will be on the Democratic side of the ballot. Uh, but can we expect that this might actually be the campaign that Trump picks for 2020? Which is to say, you know, Ilhan Omar is not going to be the Democratic nominee, but might Trump be running against her and against oh, what yeah. she has to say regardless? Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, he's doing it already. You know, he's he's a, he's uh, he's attacked Pelosi by calling Omar her leader, like your your leader, huh. like addressing Pelosi on Twitter and referring to your leader, Ilhan Omar. He's said that uh, Ilhan Omar is anti-Jewish, and he said that that means the Democratic Party is anti-Jewish. He's absolutely making her an issue, and you know there are a couple of reasons for this. Uh, Republicans, of course, want to draw Jewish voters away from the Democratic Party, and uh, Jews have for decades overwhelmingly uh, supported the Democratic Party. They want to draw Jewish donors away from the party, or at least inhibit them from giving to the party. Uh, you know, and they want, to keep the, they want to keep the Democrats on their toes. If the Democrats are busy dealing with an anti-Semitism problem within their ranks, they're spending less time and less energy and uh, eating up less media attacking 
Trump. And you know, and you see that especially today, where the uh, the Mueller report's about to be uh, released, and the Trump administration's already figuring out ways to try and deal with that. So yeah, of course, if this turns out negative, expect more claims not just from Trump, but from the uh, the RNC, the Republican National Committee, from uh, others in Congress talking about uh, Democrats and anti-Semitism. All right, Ron, thanks for helping us understand all of this. And uh, we look forward to calling on you to once again be our Washington Sherpa sometime in the future. <laughs> I'll take you to those heights. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Chag Sameach. Chag Sameach. AJC recently launched a new campaign to get Hezbollah listed as a terror group by more countries around the world. The woman leading that effort is Stephanie Giloff, Deputy Director of AJC's Belfer Institute for Latino and Latin American Affairs. Stephanie, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Steffi. So my first question is, why you? You know, our, our guest just heard me introduce you as the Deputy Director of our Belfer Institute for Latino and Latin American Affairs. Hezbollah is just an issue threatening Israel, right? What does it have to do with Latin America? Oh, far from it. Hezbollah is not only an issue that uh, affects Israel. It's an issue that, unfortunately, people in my region, from my region, we've been previewed to the devastation that it can cause. If you remember, we had an attack back in 1992 when Hezbollah put a bomb in the Israeli embassy in Buenos Aires, Argentina, where 29 people died. And then two years later, in 1994, we had the attack on the AMIA, which is the Jewish social service um, community. And back then, this is the worst terrorist attack that Argentina has suffered and one of the worst anti-Semitic attacks that has happened worldwide since World War II. And in that attack, 85 people were murdered. So we are very much aware in Latin America about the damage that Hezbollah can cause And Hezbollah has attacked worldwide. So it's an issue that affects us all. What is their animating principle? I think a lot of Americans think of them as kind of the terror group on Israel's border in Gaza is Hamas and the terror group on Israel's border in Lebanon is Hezbollah. And if you know a bit more, maybe you know that they're also a political party in Lebanon. But why do they do this in Argentina, for example, or in Bulgaria or wherever it may be around the world? Because they are a terrorist organization and they're going to try to have an impact and create havoc anywhere in the world. As you very well said, they haven't only attacked Latin America. They haven't only attacked Israel. You've had it in the European Union with the attack in 2012 in Bulgaria. So they're just creating this havoc and trying to raise funds. And in order to do that... um, in order, in order to raise these funds, it's not something that is circumscribed to a specific region. If they're going to raise funds through trafficking or illicit trade or uh, whatever means they have, the world is their oyster. So, so you just said that Hezbollah is a terrorist organization, and, and you said it kind of very flat out. Um, but it's not that simple for a lot of people. Um, and that's this project that you're working on. What exactly do we know right now about the way that people around the world define Hezbollah? I think in 2013, the EU, the European Union, labeled Hezbollah's military wing a terrorist organization. Was that enough? And, and why the distinction? So... 
this is one of the main points that we're trying to make um, with the campaign. It is a false distinction. When in 2013, the European Union, and this is something that back in 2013, AJC had a very powerful campaign, and those efforts led to the EU designating Hezbollah's military wing as a terrorist organization. But that absolutely is not enough because not even the leaders from Hezbollah make a difference between the so-called political wing and the military wing. So why should we make that distinction? It's very difficult to go after them when they can hide behind this separation and brand certain activities as political. So what we're asking the European Union and governments around the world is to finish the job. It's a job that was started in 2013 and much has been accomplished by this distinction, by designating the military wing, but it's certainly not enough. And it's time to finish the job designate the whole of Hezbollah as a terrorist organization and have governments around the world, the same as the U.S. that did so, to recognize all of Hezbollah in its entirety as a terrorist organization if they have not done so yet. Stephanie, what does it look like when AJC undertakes an advocacy project like this? You know, is this all kind of closed door meetings with heads of state? Is it something that has a more public facing angle? What is this campaign made up of? What does it look like? So, the, the issue of Hezbollah is a constant priority in AJC's agenda. However, back in February, we launched this campaign starting with more of the diplomatic and political advocacy work. So we ramped up our diplomatic outreach and we ramped up our political advocacy outreach. Now, today, what we're doing is launching the public face of the campaign. What does this public face of the campaign entail? On the one hand, we are working very closely to create this really intense media campaign that on the one hand, what we're trying to do is to raise awareness of the issue. It's an issue that is very important to us, and we believe that it's very important for others to also have it very high up on their priority. But also what we're doing is targeting specific decision makers that we know can move the needle on this issue. And so through this media campaign, we are targeting through message and by identifying these people, we are talking directly to them to see how they can bring change. That's one of the things that we're doing. We're also trying to leverage the U.S. influence to urge the European Union to take action. And so we have an action alert that we're also launching today, asking people to please contact their members of Congress and urge them to ask the European Union to take the next step, a step that has already been taken by at least a couple of European countries. It needs to be taken as a union, you know, as a larger constituency. And the other thing that we're doing as part of this campaign is, and this is something that we talked at the beginning, we are focusing on the 25th anniversary of the attack on the AMIA building in Buenos Aires. And we're doing this as an agency. We are commemorating this very somber date 
with events throughout the U.S. and internationally calling once again for justice. Uh, Stephanie, you mentioned the AJC Action Alert that is going live today. How can our listeners sign on to that Action Alert? We do ask you to sign up through our website, or you can also find we have a landing page for the Hezbollah campaign where you're going to be able to access the Action Alert, the video, and other materials that we're making available. This is something that we're going to be sharing with our followers on Facebook and Twitter through our account. Terrific. And the address for that landing page is ajc.org slash take action. All one word, ajc.org slash take action. Um, Stephanie, thank you so much for this important update. And we look forward to checking in with you through the many successes that we expect to come up from this campaign. Uh, good luck. Thank you so much, Stephanie, and Chag Sameach. Chag Sameach to you as well. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Churches. Good for the Jews? Like you, I watched with horror as Notre Dame burned this week, a victim apparently of a fateful, accidental fire. And like you, I was deeply saddened and appalled by the news that three black churches had been burned in Louisiana, victims not of the fires of fate, but of the fires of hate, allegedly set by the 21-year-old son of a deputy sheriff. And perhaps like you, I saw lists of all the ways in which Notre Dame has been a bit player in anti-Semitism through the centuries, with Jewish books burned just outside in the 13th century and anti-Semitic imagery carved into the very walls. But France is hurting, and Catholics the world over are hurting. And our black brothers and sisters in Louisiana and across the U.S. are hurting. And so what's good for the Jews is to help. Nearly a billion dollars has been pledged to rebuild Notre Dame, and over a million dollars has been sent to the three attacked communities in Louisiana. And I'm proud to announce that AJC has contributed to both important causes. Because when our brothers in faith, be they Catholic or Baptist or Muslim or Hindu or other, are afflicted, it's up to us to help. That is good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at ajc.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukang Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.